You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Hello and welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Captain John Sorello. Some of the most difficult fires our members face have been wind-impacted fires. Many times they lead to deadly results to both civilians and our members. While many of our tactics remain constant, our department always aims to learn, evolve, and improve. Improving our methods of fighting these challenging and devastating fires is no exception. It's been more than 20 plus years since the FDNY began studying the impact of wind in high-rise building fires. The scientific research, which ultimately led to our protocols and procedures along with the equipment developed to help fight these fires, are now part of our standard operating procedures. The KO curtain to control wind, the high-rise nozzle to get water on the fire from an alternate position, fans that can control smoke in a high-rise environment, are all commonly used on the New York City fire ground today. But our newer members to the FDNY and the fire service in general may be interested to know the evolution, the history, how a study becomes research, or a pilot program becomes process. Our guest today is a good friend and colleague and one of the founding architects of FDNY's pursuit of knowledge in regards to wind-impacted fires, retired battalion chief Jerry Tracy. Thank you, Jerry, for taking the time to come and speak with us today. Welcome. Good morning, and uh, thanks for having me. Just If you could just summarize your career, when it started, some of the companies that you've been in, and how they've influenced your mindset leading into wind-impacted fires, but where did it all begin? I uh, was privileged to be hired in 1977 and be assigned to 90 Engine in the Bronx, spending five years there. I was doing mutuals in a lot of 41 and really got to appreciate truck work, and from there, I really wanted to transfer into a truck. I wanted that to be a tiller, and that would be a 108 truck in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And it was probably uh, one of the best decisions I made in my career for the fact that it was a disciplined truck company. They were very good at what they did, and they really taught me my craft. There were some senior firefighters there, outstanding firefighters. And then it would be in that company that they would respond to what was a wind-driven fire. It was in 1983. It was really right around the corner from the firehouse, Montrose Avenue. I believe the building uh, was a 22-story building, fire on the 10th floor. The 3-5 Battalion chief saw the fire from the apron and made it a second alarm before he even responded. But on the fire floor, the unit's 108 truck, 216 engine, with the assistance of 230, could not make it down the hallway. The fire was in an end unit apartment. The apartment door had been left open, and they had explained it to be a blue flame blowing out of that door, impinging on an apartment door across the way from that apartment, where within that apartment was the only fatality of that fire, and that person was in their bedroom from the heat and smoke being impinged from this here blowtorch out of the fire apartment. The heat was so extreme that one of the firefighters, Jimmy Marchetti, had a Garrity light strapped to his helmet, and it actually melted down onto his turnout coat. These were some really outstanding firefighters, and I knew if they couldn't make that haul, it had to be difficult. So that was my first awareness of just how difficult wind-driven fires could be. I was in the books at the time, studying for lieutenant, beginning to really understand my job, and studying things like stack effect, things like that, and uh, firefighting procedures, multiple dwellings, which really touched upon high-rise, but really only a few pages at the end of that document really even referred to high-rise buildings and operations. And if you really 
look at that document and how it was written, the policies and procedures and the way we do business in high-rise was really born in ordinary construction. Our procedures were to implement vertical ventilation as soon as possible and horizontal ventilation when the engines were moving in when they had water. But it would be years later after I was promoted and assigned to a Fort Truck in Midtown Manhattan that now I was responding more to high-rise vents and fires in both commercial and residential buildings to where if you really paid attention, you would witness that if you were coming out of an attack stairwell to approach, let's say, a residential apartment down a public hall and that doorway was open, if you were to vent the bulkhead door, it only increased the draft in that public hall and the fire and heat would come at you at times like a freight train. So I was now coming to the understanding that maybe if we delayed roof ventilation, not even thinking about a wind-driven fire, if we perform horizontal ventilation, we were on the windward side of the building, that would even make it worse. In other words, there was now an understanding that there was flow paths, and that wasn't even in our lexicon, you know, discussing venting and smoke movement and things like that. I was privileged again as a lieutenant to become an instructor at FireTech. That gave me some credibility in the department so that when I was promoted to captain, the department asked me to become an instructor for the captain's development course to teach high-rise operations. In that presentation, I was giving the young captains a handout. And in that handout, I had some things that were rather controversial to what was written in our policy and procedures. One was attain an area of refuge if wind could be a factor before you force the apartment door, and that area of refuge should be on the same side as the fire apartment because it would be subject to the same conditions as the fire apartment, so you'd be in a safe position. But I was also uh, suggesting that there should be a delay in roof ventilation for the fact that it would only draw the fire at you if you didn't have water on the fire. One of the young captains sent a memo to me through the bag to say it was a great presentation, but you said some rather provocative things, such as roof ventilation, things like that. But from there, you know, there was a couple of events that had occurred, one of which was a wind-driven fire down in Rockaway where uh, firefighter James Williams was killed. It was a mattress fire in a bedroom, and the inside team of 121 truck had gone into the apartment before the engine had a line in place. And while they were conducting their search, the window to that bedroom failed, and the wind was blowing in off the bay, off the three side of the building, and it chased them out of the apartment. The heat got really extreme, and they got disoriented in what was a T-bone hallway. The officer and the can man was able to make it out, and uh, Jimmy Williams did not. They found him in the hallway 10 feet from the apartment door. And again, this was a fire on the third floor, stoked by wind, at the time, we didn't have it out there that they should have seeked an area of refuge. Maybe that would have helped uh, give them some safety until a line could be put in place or even operate a line from the exterior. And then I would be promoted to captain myself, transferred to the 15th Division. I bounced for three years. I was able to go back to Manhattan to become the captain of the 35 truck, and they would respond first due to a fire in one Lincoln Plaza across the street from uh, Lincoln Center, fire on the 22nd floor. The occupant of that apartment was an old-time jazz great by the name of Lionel Hampton. He had had a stroke. He had a maid and friend living with him. The fire broke out in the bedroom. It was a halogen lamp that fell over onto the bed. The window was open. It blew the curtain, blew the halogen lamp over. 
They assisted him out of the apartment, but left the apartment door open. And when the units got up there, trying to make it down the hallway, it really took eight engine companies 45 minutes to move 54 feet because the wind was blowing that fire down the hallway, right to the attack stairwell that had been vented. Sounds like a flow path to me. Absolutely. And we had no idea of flow paths at the time. Then from there, other events that happened in Brooklyn, Vandalia Avenue, that tragic event, which was a top floor fire, there was warning signs, or let's just say red flags, that could have been observations that we didn't know what they were seeing. The roof man was on the roof, 103 truck, looking over the roof down onto the fire apartment. He said flames would be coming out, they would go back in. He just thought it was a change in direction of wind, whereas many years later we would find out that that space, that apartment was being overpressurized. And what we were really seeing was puffing or uh, starfire. Ladder 170, Lieutenant Cavalieri, Firefighter Bohan, and Firefighter Bop were coming down the public hall from the opposite end of the building. And as soon as they entered the hallway where the fire apartment was, because it was in between smoke stop doors of the elevator uh, lobby, as soon as they entered the hall, an occupant in an apartment right there heard commotion in the hallway, opened his door. He had opened his windows of his apartment because smoke was starting to infiltrate. And when he opened his door, that fire, not only venting out of the fire apartment towards the attack stairwell, it went down the hallway to go into that apartment. Basically, the fire shared the vent with this open door to this apartment down the hallway. The heat overwhelmed Lieutenant Cavalry Firefighter Bohan and Bob. The fire is just going to follow the least path of resistance. Exactly. In no this matter case, where that may be. And it was in both directions. In all the fires you're mentioning, I hear a lot of, in my mind at least, and that's only because I've been exposed to this, it's just a lot of science. There's, there's a high pressure to low pressure, and that happens all the time. It's never sometimes, a maybe. The fire doesn't know what type of building it's in. It's just going to react to the physical world around it, high pressure to low pressure. And if the firefighter understands that, there are some things they can do to mitigate some of those effects. You're really referring to pressure differentials. Every fire has pressure differentials, high pressure to low pressure. A fire in a space, in a room, is going to develop pressures because of the expanding gases and ultimately high pressure to low pressure, they're going to flow one seeking oxygen and of course a low pressure sinking vent. And these were things that we had to really develop an understanding so that we could understand fire dynamics. So that's 98. What got us to finally embrace the research and try to understand this more? For me, it was getting out of uh, the bubble of FDNY and attending the fire department instructors conference. I was introduced to a research engineer from the National Institute of Standard and Technology, his name Dan Medzikowski. I had discussed with him the fire in Rockaway, Jimmy Williams, and he expressed interest as well in uh, trying to understand fire dynamics in these types of structures, understanding that they would react different. After Vandalia, there was a fire maybe about a week later up on 61st Street in two adjoining apartments that was wind-driven. There was fatalities there in the stairwell. But was there a trigger event that really got the ball rolling that you can remember? 
After a fire that George Healy, he was three months in rank as a new battalion chief, I believe it was January of uh, 2006, uh, would occur in 4020 Beach Channel Drive, the very building that Firefighter Williams was killed in. This time the fire was on the top floor. George was well aware of wind-driven fires. As units were getting into position up on the top floor, he walked through the lobby, out the rear door, and was looking up at the fire apartment, and he witnessed the window failing, and he notified uh, the firefighters up on the fire floor. A young firefighter, Proby, was trapped in a hallway, and another firefighter from 121 truck had gained an area of refuge in the adjoining apartment, came out, and assisted that firefighter into that area of refuge. It would just be a couple of weeks later that there would be almost an identical fire in Tracy Towers in the Bronx. That was also very difficult. After these two fires, Chief Cassano assembled what was the high-rise committee, for which I was part of, and they asked me if I still had my relationship with the National Institute of Standard Technology, and of course I said I did, and that was early of 2006. In June of 2006, a, a building would become available in Toledo. We couldn't burn but we could smoke the building up with theatrical smoke and with thermocouples and pressure readings throughout the building. We proved that in a 30-story building with portable fans, we could create a pressure that would maintain the stairwells free of smoke at an ordinary fire. I say ordinary, in other words, not a wind-impacted fire. You would join that effort, and also Chief George Healy. I knew of your background, your enthusiasm, your open-mindedness, and you still had a lot of years left of the job because I was in the twilight of my career. I still remember getting that call, and uh, you said, hey, you want to go to Toledo, Ohio? And I'm like, for what? <laughs> and you explained what it was going to be about. And at that particular time, I maybe understood how our box fan worked, but I had no idea of what a positive pressure fan did. And I was blown away. And that, to me, shows the commitment of the staff that we had a problem. We have to start wrapping our brains around it. And... And one of those aspects is going to be we need to get to know these researchers and find out what they're doing to help us better understand the challenges before us. So we're in Toledo. We're blowing air into a high-rise building. It works. I remember two members from the Chicago Fire Department that were there assisting us, Pete Van Dorp and, and Chief Edgeworth, right? And I remember their comment was, this is all wonderful. But if it's not under fire conditions, my Chicago firefighters, who, by the way, are very, very similar to an FDNY firefighter, tough as nails firefighters, but if they don't see fire up against this equipment, it's going to mean nothing. So where did that lead us? So November of 2006, they acquired a 16-story building that we conducted 18 live fires, furnished apartments, and we proved that the fans kept the stairwells free of smoke. We had conducted 16 of the 18 burns. We had two more to go, and we convened to say, you know what? Uh, Chicago has this fan. It's called an MVU, Mobile Ventilation Unit, that is on an elevated platform, and we could put it right outside the apartment window. Why don't we recreate a wind-driven fire? And we did. We captured it on film, and the effects were devastating. On film, we brought back to the administration of FDNY that once a window fails... Nobody, no firefighter could outrun the fire. And this is exactly what happened on Vandalia Avenue. And that leads us to the next step. Well, with that, Brooklyn Polytech Institute, they weren't affiliated with NYU at the time. We approached them. Brooklyn Polytech conducted the research back in 1973 with then Chief of the Department John O'Hagan to prove that a fixed 
fan system in a building could pressurize stairwells to maintain them free of smoke. So here we are now with uh, Brooklyn Polytech working on portable fans. They did want to join the effort. They were smart enough to allow NIST, the National Institute of Standard Technology, actually conduct the research, gain the data, so that Brooklyn Polytech could publish the data. What we learned, we can bring that same system as a fire service and get these stairwells pressurized. I've had fires where when we get stairwells pressurized, you see an immediate change in the smoke. And again, remember, keeping the stairwells clear is not just for us, the fire service. It'll it certainly assist us in fighting the fire, but it's for the civilian population that is trying to get out of the building. Regardless if we tell them to defend in place, they want out of the building. And we've seen this time and time again. It's human nature. So we were able to develop a relationship with the gentleman that was in charge of Governor's Island to allow us to use a building out there. Governor's Island, to me, the beauty of that was here we had this choice island just off the lower point of, of Manhattan that we could basically control and do what needed to be done to take the next step. We were able to take these six-story fireproof buildings and they were going to be our, our research playground for the next week or so. We reached out to NIST. This is prior to UL getting into the fire research. We bring in Brooklyn Polytech, right now NYU Polytech. We bring them in to help us set up the building so that we can collect the data. And obviously NIST, they're bringing everything from thermal couples to pressure transducers to get the pressure differentials, right? How you light a fire. We're not using accelerants. We're using all natural products that you would find in someone's apartment. That alone, the logistics of that was incredible. You have to have the same mattress, the same end table, the same love seat in every single experiment. Otherwise, you're going to get different fuel loads. Exactly. It's extremely difficult. So at this point, we know stairwell pressurization works, right? However, we had some other concepts of how to control this wind-impacted event, right? The KO curtains as well as how do we get water on a fire? You talked before about this one tenement approach down the hallway, and in certain situations, we now know this is not doable. Our gear is not designed to take that type of thermal insult. So how can we get water on it from an alternate position that lays out what we want to learn at Governor's Island? Science, fact, and data that's irrefutable had to really be introduced here because a chief of the department making any sort of changes, both in the use of tools or policies and procedures, he has to, one, is this safe for my firefighters to perform these new and different approaches and actions, use of these new tools? All of this has to be proven with science, and that is what we were able to do. We needed our people to see it front and center of what these tools were capable of. And you'd be perfectly honest with you, we didn't know what nozzle was going to be the end result. We didn't know how we were going to control the wind on the exterior of the building. There was a blanket or a KO curtain. And this allowed us to test these things. What can you say about the testing and the result? We had about 80 individuals per day operating out in Governor's Island. And the firefighters that were brought out there were really handpicked to be those that would be informal leaders in their respective firehouses throughout the job. We wanted those firefighters to not just accept what they were doing, but also question and learn and to be convinced themselves that these new approaches of both blocking wind, 
dropping the KO curtain down over the fire apartment failed window. And we tried different nozzles, straight streams, fog nozzles. Amazing that both of those tools, the high-rise nozzle and the KO curtain, were both designed by firefighters from the FDNY. The KO curtain uh, was developed by two firefighters out of 19 truck, Tommy Oswald and, and, pa- and Patty Kilduff. Patty Kilduff. Yeah. And the high-rise nozzle, the nozzle that we actually went with that was so efficient, was a firefighter out of R&D. Right, Paul Robinson. And his was the most simplistic design. We had tried a whole bunch of others, right? There were some that hung on windowsills, some that were fog nozzles, and, and yet that simple design we thought was the best. Again, we tested a lot of different things. We were open-minded. I can still remember having members say, what, what are you, crazy, dropping a curtain over a window that's vented? When the wind is hitting that window, we may get momentary puffs of overpressurization, as you had mentioned earlier. However, that's not venting. That's not normal venting. We've had a number of fires where when smoke is doing anything other than out a window and straight up, if it's doing anything other than that, puffing, going down, going sideways, that's wind impacted. What helped the most with our training uh, of the department and uh, increasing our awareness was what we were able to capture on video. And there was video cameras outside the building, on tower ladders, at ground level, inside the building, in the hallways, in the stairwells, in the fire apartment. Uh, we had cameras set up from the adjoining apartment at the floor level so that we could capture the movement of smoke and fire through the apartment. Fire venting from the apartment doorway all the way to a stairwell. One of the fires, we didn't have to create a wind. It was natural wind one day in an end bedroom of an apartment. The bedroom door was open. The apartment door was open. The natural wind outside blowing into that bedroom space overpressured the space so much that it was puffing smoke back out the window. But yet the video that was captured in the public hallway was flame from floor to ceiling out of the apartment door and 25 feet further down the hallway, there was flames blowing into the stairwell because we had the bulkhead open. So that was proof positive of the devastation of a wind impacted fire. And then uh, when you introduce water and curtains, how that changes dramatically. Yeah, that particular event with the overpressurization of that apartment, that allowed us to understand what the roof position was seeing at Vendalia Avenue. That's right. That momentary burst of heat and smoke was not a fluctuating wind. It was the overpressurization of that compartment. So again, the research is becomes in alignment with what's happening on the street. We just have to connect the dots and understand them better. We had a large 48-inch gasoline-powered ventilation fan on a forklift that was going to replicate the wind force on the days we did not have the wind. So for the first couple days, uh, we were using that fan. But then later in the week, we got natural wind. We were able to see what the natural wind did. And I can tell you right now, the natural wind creates a much more devastating event inside the building than anything the fans could produce. We were able to put together training programs, visuals that firefighters could arrive on scene, look up in their size up, and see these indications of wind puffing or starfire or eccentric flame coming out of a window that, in fact, it was going to be a wind-impacted event before you even entered the building. Introducing these tools to the job, granted, it was extra things for firefighters to carry, 
to bring it into the apartment of the floor above. And there was units actually pre-deploying the KO curtain over windows that hadn't failed yet, understanding that, God forbid, it should fail while the teams are moving in, they're in trouble. That's a very intelligent operation. Oh, it makes you proud. And the high-rise nozzle was designed so that it could be extended out of a window. A firefighter did not have to straddle a window and be subject to falling debris and things like that. As well as falling out the window. Exactly. We, we saw that as trouble in some of the other nozzles that were introduced, that the firefighter would get fatigued, and then there's a potential you'd have to have them tied off. The nozzle that was uh, decided on doesn't need any of that. It was fantastic. One of the most impactful things I remember in regards to the the high-rise nozzle was the first time we went to test it, I remember saying to myself, this is going to be interesting because we're going to have fireballs in the hallways that's going to just incinerate the hallway. And I remember after the first test, when the high-rise nozzle hit the ceiling of the fire compartment with the apartment door open, with the bulkhead door open, creating that flow path, it was lights out in seconds. The fire was extinguished. It's still, still hot, still an unhospitable place to be, but certainly was moving things very rapidly in the right direction. God forbid we did have a, a company pinned down the hallway or a firefighter down the hallway like Jimmy Williams or like Vandalia Avenue. We could then go out at least and get them. But it was instantaneous. And then after test one, test two, test three, test four, the same thing every time. We never saw the fireball. We never saw that that water pushed this flame front through the building. It did the exact opposite. Water on the fire is always a good thing, regardless of where it comes from. Right. There was some pushback with respect to delaying venting bulkheads and things like that. But that was because of what firefighters studied, what they were presented with beforehand, what they were used to, and much of what they were used to was tenement tactics and fires in ordinary construction. So it really took time. We conclude on Governor's Island. We walk away with products, the KO curtain and the fire blanket. Both tools work well, one being a little easier to deploy than the other and, and quicker, which was the KO curtain, and that's kind of why every truck company has one of those now. We figure out our high-rise nozzle. We now see that water on the fire is always good, and the fire goes out, right? And we also backed it up with our stairwell pressurization, which, by the way, it's really not a wind-impacted tool. It should be utilized at every high-rise fire no matter what. A fixed system in a high-rise building doesn't ask the incident commander to come on when it senses heat or smoke in the building. It automatically comes on. Why? Because a pressurized stairwell is always a good thing for the occupants as well as for the firefighters who are going to fight that fire. And we want to try to replicate that. But all firefighters at every rank have to understand the disciplines of smoke management and control, meaning keep stairwell doors closed to evacuation stairs, door control at the fire apartment, possibly door control at the attack stairwell. I know one of the challenges is using gasoline-powered fans inside a building. And I agree. CO is produced by the fan. However, a free-flowing fire, a free-burning fire in an occupancy, if the smoke is not controlled and is allowed to get into the, the hallways and allowed to get into the stairwells, you're talking the parts per million of carbon monoxide can be anywhere from between 10,000 to 40,000 parts per million. So whatever the gasoline-powered fan introduces is 
a whole lot better than numbers that I just mentioned, all right? However, when we have low levels of CO, the company should be going to the electric fan, and now we're just about to uh, roll out in a pilot program some lithium battery operated fans to, to help us smoke control in those lower concentrations of smoke. So that's fantastic. All right, so what's the next step? How does that get implemented so that every firefighter in the city of New York can understand what needs to be done at these fires? We wanted to saturate the entire department, not just firefighters, line officers, chief officers, the administration. There had to be an understanding and there had to be a buy-in from the entire department that, yes, we accept this. This is for our safety. It's for the safety of the public. Amazing. It seems like it was a very organic kind of uh, evolution of, of this knowledge, one piece to the next to the next. And, of course, we realize wind-impacted fires is Every type of structure, not just high-rise. It could be a private dwelling. It could be a taxpayer. It could be uh, ordinary construction, an H-type building, apartment house. Wind impacts all types of fires, and we have to be aware of it. Uh, You show up at work in the morning, look at the uh, American flag flying outside, and you can see whether or not you're going to have a windy day or not. Absolutely. Chief Tracy, we thank you very much taking the time out of, I'm sure, your busy retired schedule. (laughs) And in that retirement, I've heard you've uh, got some uh, irons in the fire. Well, I was fortunate to collaborate with two other gentlemen, a chief from uh, Leona, New Jersey, uh, Jack Murphy, and a staff chief by the name of uh, James Murta. He also was a Bronx Borough commander. The three of us got together and uh, wrote a book. It was just published April of this year, 2023, the title being High-Rise Buildings Understanding the Vertical Challenge. It has 12 chapters, more than 700 pages. Phenomenal. I'm holding the book right now. Uh, obviously, as a captain operating in Manhattan, I, I can see that I have a lot of reading ahead of me. Chief, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for your service. And uh, I can see that there's more to come. God bless. Thank you. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's greatest.